Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark, and I am joined to my father, Jeff Clark. No, sorry, joined by my father, Jeff Clark. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I just got an email from an annoying pedant, you know who you are, um, which is true, and he pointed out that apparently I always have said uh, I'm joined with my father. But technically, that would mean we are actually you know, tied together or something like that. I can join twins. So it should be joined by my joined father. Joined by. Yeah. But uh, for the pedant's information, that also implies that the father comes along after the son has set up. Uh, because when you say joined by, it's usually implied that um, there's something going on which is joined by a, yeah. a third party. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, we, we enjoy those sorts of things. And, yeah. uh, or I, but also, we need to draw a distinction, distinction between spoken English and written English. Also, the other thing not to forget is that we are trailblazers. We sometimes make deliberate mistakes where we think the language needs to change. Yeah. Um, and so you need to bear that in mind. Yeah, to move the zeitgeist forward. Yeah. Even zeitgeist, I think, has got to go. And, you know, be something like, like, cool contemporary. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I will do my best to, you know, mixing it up on the introduction is always a bit difficult anyway. Uh, anyway, in this podcast we're going to look at two different fallacies, impugning motives and poisoning the well. Uh, if the noise is a bit dodged, that's because we're outdoors drinking coffee on a busy street. But it's much easier and more fun for us to get together. Now, while, while I used to send Theo out to play on a busy street, when he was a little fellow, uh, playing with razor blades and so on, uh, we're not actually on a busy street, but that's commonly understood to mean that you're next to a busy street. Yeah, next to it, yeah. So, on the, on the for the path. pedant again, just yeah. to explain, yeah. we're on the footpath next to the busy street and that, that explains the noise yeah anyway um, so first of all uh, yeah so we're going to look at the two fallacies impugning motives poisoning the well so let's now go do our reading from the book which we're going to record somewhere else because we don't want to look like idiots on the side of the street reading our book out loud we just want to look like we're having a conversation in front of the computer it starts Impugning motives, other terms and or related concepts. Accusation that the opponent is insincere, running a hidden agenda or in denial. Our description, the advocate claims that the opponent has devious motives or making his or her case or has unconscious motives which have led to a biased position on the issue under discussion. If the advocate claims that the opponent has devious motives, then the opponent stands accused of concealing the truth in order to win an argument. If the advocate claims unconscious motives on the part of the opponent, then the opponent is characterised as prey to his or her own emotions and unworthy of engaging in discussion. Example. There is a staff meeting being held in a high school maths department. Jill Flypaper, 
the advocate, says, I know the real reason why you are arguing the merits of voice recognition computer software, Barry. You just want everyone to know that you are the expert and that you have more technical knowledge than the rest of us. Comment. In this example, Jill is attempting to cast doubt on Barry's argument in favour of voice recognition software by claiming that Barry is just showing off his computer knowledge and doesn't really have good reasons for advocating voice recognition software per se. It is likely that Jill's deliberate intention is to convey the impression that Barry is insincere. But it's also possible to interpret the comment as implying that Barry is sincere but simply unaware of his real motives. While the accusation of insincerity or delusion may in fact be true, there is no way of knowing whether it is or isn't true. Even if true, it's not a compelling reason for rejecting the purchase of voice recognition software. At the most, it's a reason to be cautious about Barry's argument and for examining it carefully. In the final analysis, the case for purchasing the software needs to be decided on its merits, rather than dismissed out of hand because of supposed suspect motives. The problem with the tactic of casting doubt on motives is that discussions between antagonists can degenerate into a spiral of accusation and counter-accusation. While witnesses to such arguments may form conclusions about the motives of the protagonists and weigh one against another, they could be totally wrong. The most credible and apparently forthright people might be devious in the extreme, while a shifty looking person might in fact be very honest. The seeker after truth will be alert to and recognise the use of the fallacy of impugning motives and will draw attention to any attempt by an advocate to use it. They will point out that all behaviour and opinions are by definition motivated. Motives for any point of view can be assumed, but not the nature of those motives. Further, idle speculation about motives may be completely incorrect, and even if such speculation is correct, it doesn't usually clarify a debate or help determine the actual merits of a point of view. In our view, anyone who engages in gratuitous speculation about motives is motivated by malice. Except the authors of this book, when we speculate about motives, we do so in a spirit of disinterested inquiry and our speculations have proven in the past to be almost invariably correct. Poisoning the well. Other terms and or related concepts. Guilt by association. They're all tarred with the same brush. And our description... The advocate attempts to undermine or throw doubt on the opponent's position by linking the opponent's argument to a group which is seen as suspect or a source which is denigrated by the advocate. Thus the metaphor of poisoning the well. Any water, that is idea, taken from that well or source is poisonous, that is tainted, of no value. Example Stan Webb's server, The Advocate, is engaged in a dispute with Sally Cuppyhouse during a seminar on unemployment. Sally cites some figures published by the Catholic Welfare Agency, which suggest that 10% of families resident in urban areas are living below the poverty line. Stan says, 
I wouldn't even consider any figures put out by them. They all have an axe to grind and just want to undermine the policies of the government. Comment. It may actually be true, or partially true, that an advocacy group such as the Catholic Welfare Agency is prone to selective publication of results, using biased research methods, and concealing information that doesn't support their case. It may also be true that their research is impeccable, objective, and extremely reliable. The seeker after truth is not naive and therefore should be sceptical about research results. But seekers after truth are not cynical. Stan's fallacy is in the act of dismissing the results out of hand, a priori. In doing so, he refuses to give careful consideration to Sally's point. Stan's intransigence obstructs the discussion and probably creates an implacable opponent out of Sally. Further discussion between them will be fruitless. Stan's response should have been to question Sally about the provenance of the article and to seek further information. If the time was available to him, he could then read the article for himself and draw his own conclusions. Advocates who habitually poison the well by denying a priori that information from particular sources can have any value may see themselves as sceptics. For example, a common bonding ritual in our culture and within a particular social class is bagging the Americans. This is a social activity where like-minded people share variants of the sentiment that the Americans can't be trusted. In sharing these sentiments, they, by implication, congratulate each other and see themselves as sceptical, principled and capable of deep insights into global political issues. However, it could be argued that such sentiments are shallow rather than profound, and that persons expressing such sentiments are selectively cynical rather than sceptical. A seeker after truth can always come up with a sceptical response to a fatuous, fatuous generalisation intended to poison a well, For example, an analytical line of probing questions could be directed at the advocate who claims that the Americans can't be trusted. Each question would move the advocate out of his or her comfort zone. What do you mean by the Americans? All Americans? All of the time? Aren't Americans pretty diverse, like Australians? When smug and ignorant advocates assert that they always disbelieve a particular source of information, for example, the Americans, the police a particular political party, the government, the unions, the environmental lobby, the mining companies, the military, more often than not, they fondly imagine that they are enlightened, principled and sceptical. In actual fact, they are proudly declaring their knee-jerk cynicism. Ignore the well-poisoners and seek out the company of open-minded persons, persons more like your good self. The, the two examples, I've only got an example of each one uh, uh, to have a look at quickly. Uh, now, the first example, let's just have a quick look at impugning motives. Now, this one is used all the time. This fallacy is just whipped out left, right and centre. And basically, as we've already said in, in the, uh, the greeting, essentially the proponent tries to make 
the opponent look like they have some kind of devious motive and therefore they're wrong. So the the classic ones are around, um, you know, motivations in terms of, say in terms of scepticism, you know, big farmer, you've been bought off by big farmer or whatever and things like that and therefore you, we can't trust you. Um, or, you know, to do with, say, the Iraq war, it was all about the oil or, or things like that. Now... All those things could be true, but you need to provide some kind of evidence for them. You can't just imply that someone has those devious motives without some kind of decent evidence besides just your own belief. That's what you think about that person. Uh, the, the thing I find most interesting, Theo, about impugning motives too is that people who do routinely and mindlessly impugn motives often see themselves as razor-sharp critical thinkers. So, because they think they've found a link between a person's public position on something and some source of funding or, you know, a, a background they have in their career, they worked for the Department of Defence 15 years ago or something, they, they think they've found a devastating argument which completely undermines what the person has to say. And, and really, people who use impugning motives as some kind of closing argument that automatically negates everything the other person says, yeah. is actually the reverse of a critical thinking, a uh, critical thinker. But they are actually a routine thinker who has learnt a process among peers who are also not critical thinkers. Absolutely. And it becomes a kind of group thing. And there's nothing worse than group think, and all my friends agree with me. <laughs> no, but... but um... <laughs> Yeah, you don't, want to be, you don't want to be one of the sheeple. But, uh, but again, it's a classic thing too used by um, people who are intransigent. So they've formed a view that X is bad. You know, and then they say, okay, well, why do people do that? There's no evidence for why somebody's motivated there, so then they come up with some kind of motivation. And they don't take people at their word or whatever. And, and you, you know what, you should question people. You should try and think, what could their motives be? Who benefits? But you, you can't just... If that's all you're doing, then all you're doing is drawing these tenuous conclusions that aren't based on evidence. And that's the key there. You need some kind of actual documented evidence that backs up those claims. Um, so it's important to draw distinctions because... Someone doesn't follow the evidence doesn't mean they're not right, but you're not going to convince me without the evidence. A, a, a good response to somebody impugning motives is to say, is that all you've got? All you can do is impugn their motives, which are unknown anyway. Is that all you've got? Exactly. So really mock them for being so shallow in their responses to a particular argument if impugning motives is the be-all and end-all of their argument. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more, actually. I think uh, especially you know, throwing the burden back on them because a lot of the time happens is they say that to you and then you, you're, you feel like you're left with your burden to, to prove that they don't have those motives. But how, how can you do that? You can't... It's impossible to get inside someone else's mind you need evidence that said, I'm motivated by this reason or this is why I do things, you know what I mean? So so it's it's very difficult to be able to go back. It's literally impossible to go into someone else's mind to know what they're really motivated by. So you therefore need some kind of evidence for that motivation. Um, but anyway, my, one of my favourite, of course, is, uh, is the... Uh, so that's something I say all the time. One of my favourite. Well, I don't have favourites. Well, I do. But anyway, here's a good example I found. It's to do with the 9-11 conspiracy theories and classic example where people have to find motivation for why would the US government have caused September 11. Anyway, 
this is not a real example that I can find of real people, but it was from our one of our favourite websites, The Onion. book called The Truth About September 11th claims to present evidence that the destruction of the World Trade Center was not the work of terrorists, but was in fact perpetrated by the U.S. government. With us, the much maligned book's author, William Gerard. Most of the mainstream media, they're just too afraid to even have me on, so thank you. Also joining us is Omar Al-Farouk of Al-Qaeda. He's an outspoken critic of what he calls Gerard's 9-11 conspiracy theories. Yes, Michael, uh, I assure you that is all this book is, is complete nonsense. True. Gerard, why in the world would the U.S. government want to stage this attack on their own soil? Greed, of course. And to increase the oil revenues, the weapons industry, and security industry, and these are all things that Bush and... Uh, Puppet Master Cheney, they've got their stakes in. Bush's administration, there are a den of jackals. We, we there certainly have common ground there. But, but what does not follow is why would they kill? Follow. Why would they kill three thousand of their own infidels? Well, of course, because why, think about why it. It was all part they, of their plan to build a case for the war in Iraq. And he was so smart to plan it. all of this. Why is his approval rating, you know, in El Haman? And why is Osama bin Laden safe in? Somewhere. Yes, the Iraq war has done serious damage to the Bush uh, administration. Here, he's like talking to a girl. This is the kind of thing our government does. I have a suggestion for you. Why don't you go to the Washington Monument? Take the family. Let's say October 12, uh, 2009, uh, around 3.04. Uh, take a guided tour to the top and uh, just wait there. I, I think you will see that Al-Qaeda... Uh, is very good at, at organizing things. Gentlemen, You'll see. gentlemen, thank you. Coming up when we come back, the 2008. The Onion, and the obvious example there is, you know, why would he do it? And then he comes up with some some reasons that aren't based on any kind of evidence besides in my imagination. I mean, basically, it's in my imagination, this is what's motivated this person. Fine, give me some evidence for that. It, uh, it's also very heartening in a way that uh, I, I, it made me think about the frustration on the part of Al-Qaeda <laughs> at having all the conspiracy theorists steal their equipment away from them. Okay, so the next example we're going to uh, have a listen to uh, is about the movie Expelled, which uh, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with. was a movie, an anti-evolution movie, a pro-intelligent uh, design creationism movie, hosted by Ben Stein of Ferris Bueller's Day Off fame. Uh, and he, this is an interview uh, with him from some American TV show, his name escapes me at the moment, because uh, I don't know it very, very much. But anyway, he was on it, and the, uh, the host did quite a good job of pointing out that he decided to link Darwinism with Hitler, and he has a go at him about that, because the linkage there, obviously, is a very good example of poisoning the well by linking Darwinism with Hitler. Obviously, you are trying to make Darwinism look evil and bad and blah, 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 blah. That was a clip in Ben Stein's new documentary, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. The film offers an in-depth look at science in the 21st century, specifically the scientific community's obsession uh, with evolution and the great lengths it will go to to discredit intelligent design or uh, the religious view of creation. Here to talk about the film is actor and author, among other things. Very unique career you've had, Ben. Your first appearance, finally. 
Uh, in this movie, yes, you go to a concentration camp where Mengele. We went. No, uh, we, we went right. to Dachau, not to Auschwitz. Okay, okay. Uh, and you talk about Hitler influenced, being influenced by Darwinism. No doubt about it. Uh, why invoke caught. Hitler? What are you trying to say? There? Well, our point is that uh, Darwin, this meek, mild-mannered sage of a country estate outside London, uh, had ideas which, when implemented, uh, led to the Holocaust. He believed there were superior and inferior races. He believed that only fools would allow the inferior races to continue breeding. His followers and close friends in the United Kingdom said that meant we should start exterminating the Jews. But are you implying that if you believe in evolution and Darwinism, that there's a link to the way Hitler no, thinks? Not and today. Is that not what today, you're not to today's Darwinists. No, not at all today's Darwinists. I mean, the leading Darwinists today, like Dawkins and Dennett, those people aren't even remotely in that league. But Darwinism gave the rationale for the Holocaust. There had always been anti-Semitism. There had always been racism. But to apply the idea of exterminating whole races as a good thing, as a thing that was salutary for the human race, that came out of Darwinism, and it, it's a frightening thing. Yeah, I mean, but it's not what Darwinists or people who believe in evolution think. That's no way that any of us who may believe that are close or anywhere I near that. So agree to more that I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree. I didn't say it. I didn't imply it. You, you well, just, by bringing up you Hitler and bringing up concentration camps in the film, aren't you? You just implied it, Alan. But that's what you do in the film. You bring up Hitler. No, we brought it up about Darwin, not about you. Not about oh, you but those or who believe no, no, in evolution. No, you're just making that up. You just made that up. That's just not true well, at all. Why bring we, up Hitler? Because we, Hitler was a lineal descendant of Darwin. He wasn't a lineal descendant of Alan Combs. I don't <laughs> think you were even alive. I understand, but the implication is there. Well, that's, the implication you know. is just an implication <laughs> you made up. All right. Well, that's what I, the implication I got from watching your movie. Okay. Yeah, so the, the linking to Hitler with Darwinism is a classic red herrings um, that they use as well, in that it's got essentially nothing to do with it. Eugenics is what they're talking about, and eugenics um, is comes from uh, one of Darwin's cousins, Galton, I think his name was, and that certainly, eugenics, you can argue, is a form of artificial selection, but it's not natural selection. So there's a massive difference, and we've been doing artificial selection for millennia. And, and there were social movements that came out of Darwinian um, insights that Darwin himself disowned, and true Darwinians disowned. So um, popular movements for the improvement of society as a whole by... Uh, euthanizing or not, not allowing people of low intellect to breed and those sorts of things were not initiatives by Darwin. No, well again, but, but, that's, but see that's not natural selection, that's artificial selection, and which, which has been well known and well established now. It may have had more impetus because people were talking about evolution or talking about natural selection, but it is, you know, that's a, the a categorical error is that by definition, natural selection would tell us to not interfere. I mean, if you're going to apply natural selection, you would not deliberately interfere. You might set up a, a fairly horrible society where you also don't help people and you just go with natural selection, but you wouldn't euthanize people either because that's artificial selection. So you wouldn't hold tests, you know, to see whether people can breed or not. Um, you wouldn't measure intelligence to decide whether people can breed or not. That's immediately going to be artificial selection. But yeah, as you said, you know, Darwin did not endorse that kind of thing. He, he thought, I think he thought the ideas were interesting, maybe, but I don't think he... And certainly modern evolutionists abhor it and, and argue against it strongly. Um, so it's a complete... Basically, it's to, to get that link there. And he disingenuously tries to say, oh, no, I'm just telling a historical narrative. 
And it's like, well, no, actually what you're doing is you're deliberately trying to link that. It's a red herring and it's, a, it's an attempt at poisoning the well. Yeah, a, a, a lot of people um, end up poisoning the well because of a particular bad experience they've had. So, for example, if, um, if somebody is uh, assaulted in a particular part of town by a person of a particular race, um, they may conclude that you know that's a part of town to be avoided and that people of that particular race uh, tend to be violent and so on. And that's really just extrapolating from a single anecdote yeah. to a whole race. And then they start poisoning the well by saying anything that comes from that direction. Yeah. Or that source is tainted in some way. Uh, e- even something as simple as uh, if you have a surgical procedure and uh, you get infected with a very serious infection in a hospital, um, you could develop... Uh, uh, a pathological hatred of surgeons in, yeah. generally, in general and uh, say the surgeons just want to cut you and that's the native and if there's a medical solution they could use, they won't use it they'll use surgery because that's what they get off on um, again, you're tainting a whole group with a particular bad experience which may have not, not been the surgeon's fault anyway oh, Actually a good example I can think of is um the whole uh, the the cartoon the Muhammad cartoon funeral, you know, with um, and so people like, let's boycott Dutch food and Dutch products and blah blah blah. It's just absurd. So you're linking that with you know what one newspaper did with, all, with their entire country. Um, so you know, and of course that was the complete opposite should have been done. Everyone should have bought more Dutch and celebrated the balls they had for doing that, and pushing free speech and not not, not like some of the gutless newspaper editors in Australia and the the mealy mouths responses they had to that. Yeah, although I hasten to add that we didn't put the Muhammad cartoons on our on our blog. Yeah, true. Um, but that was just a, a decision. It wasn't based on our own we don't fear of being. No, it's, it's purely from your point of view that you don't want any competition to your own cartoons. Oh, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's, that's that was true. it. That's yeah, true, yeah, obviously, yeah. you know, we're well, not going to promote anyone else's work. That, that's true, and also, in a way, it's, it looks like self-aggrandisement because any of those cartoons were inferior to mine anyway. They were, they were rubbish. And people would see that, and I, I just don't want to blow my own trumpet public. <laughs> yeah. OK, well, those are two examples of those fallacies. All cartoons yeah. are scum, you know. Oh, most of them Except are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Sorry. Some of them. Oh, I just got carried away. No, you're right, they are. Well, there's some I could name. There, well, like, there's one that's better than you, I'm sorry. His name's Gary Larson. Oh, Gary Larson, yeah. yeah. I'd, 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 well, graphically, he's about as good as me, but, but his ideas are definitely... So oh, he's a genius. Mine. It's very very rare to use the word genius, yeah, but he's a genius. His ideas are better than yeah. mine. Anyway, okay. So, look, there the two fallacies we're going to look at. Now, just a couple of other points I wanted to uh, bring up. Bring up. Um, now... First of all, for some reason, our old archived episodes from episode 11 down aren't showing up on iTunes. I don't know why. I'm not promising, but I'll probably bother to investigate. But you can definitely get all the archived episodes from the website. So if you go to www.skepticsfieldguide.net, you can get the archived episodes there, the old ones, because I know one of the reviews on iTunes and one of the the American store, I think, mentioned that. don't know why. I'll look into it, but eh. Um, and so that's one thing. Uh, the other one is I want to big up um, Joel Birch and whoever else worked on it. Uh, Joel from the Young Australian Skeptics. Um, 
did their work on the Australian Skeptics' new website. It looks fantastic. It's a great bit of design. Uh, it's a really good example of how to design or build a website. So, so if you haven't had a look at it, go over to the, uh, the Australian Skeptics' website. That's at um, www.skeptics.com.au, and the Skeptics is the K. So go have a look at it. It's excellent. Uh, and also just want to mention that the next conference, Skeptics Conference, is in Brisbane as well. So you can go look up, if you just look up um, the Australian Skeptics Conference, that is. If you look up uh, Briz Skepticon, I think it's under, just Google it, you'll find links to it. It'll go to the Australian Skeptics website. Well, just one final comment. The the only exception to uh, poisoning the well I would ever grant is that a statement which might appear to be poisoning the well, like the following one, Nothing good can come out of Griffith University. <laughs> now that sounds like it might be poisoning hey, well. I got my degrees from there. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> from 19. Oh, no, point taken. No, from from right. 2009, nothing good has come out of Griffith University. Warning, or warning, satire alert. Please don't liable us. <laughs> And that's simply a statement of truth. It's, it's not poisoning the well. And uh, I just like to make that point that sometimes things are true. Um, I'll stop there because I generalisation. I'll stop there because I have many generalisations. All right, Dad. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. Schadenfreude, the guilty pleasures of humbug. What an absolute wanker. Fancy bothering to write in about, oh, you say joined with instead of joined by. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've got better things to say, mate. Spoken English, just not bloody written English. Like, yeah, if I'd written in the sentence. I mean, if you want to hear someone speak perfect written English, then subscribe to bloody Stephen Fry's friggin' podcast. That guy is ridiculous. But, you know, I didn't go to Oxford, sorry. I had a, a state school education in Australia, you know. Oh, the other thing is prepositions are always in a state of flux, too. Yeah. It's usage. And a lot of them change, you know. Actually... Now that I think about it, I probably do deserve it because I can be quite a pedant as well. Like I was at a, a coffee shop a month ago or so, I won't name the brand, and uh, they had a, they had a sign that said today's quiz, and if you if you got the quiz right, you could get a free coffee. Today's without an apostrophe, oh, okay. and I, you know. Anyway, so I, I first of all I cheated by googling the answer to the quiz, obviously on my phone. And then I told the chick the answer, and she said, no, that's not it. She said, and she, they, it, was, it was something to do with history. It was like, when was the first ever, I think it was the little coffee, it was like, when was the first ever coffee first discovered or whatever. And they had the second one, according to Wikipedia, not the first one. But I wasn't exactly going to go, actually, no, you're wrong, because then I'm probably so cheated, you know. So then I thought, oh, I'm going to correct, because of that screw, you're going to correct you on your, on your grammar. And I said, oh, well, what about if I correct your grammar? Do I get a coffee then? And she just looked at me like I was an idiot. <laughs> so, you know. I hope you said your name was Ramon, because I'm trying to build a reputation for well, I, I haven't been using Ramon. Ramon. No, no, I've been using um, uh, Roberto, I've been using. Roberto. Because I've always been worried if they ask me how to spell Ramon, and I'd screw that up. So Roberto, I think I can just go Robert with an O. Yeah, yeah. Not that I don't know how to spell Ramon, but to do it naturally. Yeah, yeah. Like, because, yeah, yeah. so, yeah. so, um... 
Whereas, um, but I do like Ramon. Yeah, Ramon. Yeah. And of course, my all-time classic favourite is to say my name is um, uh, Bumelay, spelled B-U-M hyphen H-O-L-E. So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net. <laughs>